the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Hey, it's big weekend, big weekend. I love, I love Flag Day. Do you know what Flag Day is? Do you know the details of Flag Day? I'm not going to lie to you. If I knew this, I didn't remember it. Um, so I, I, I looked it up because I love Flag Day. And every Flag Day... About five or six years ago, I bought a whole bunch of small flags, maybe two feet high. Maybe the whole thing is two feet high. The flag itself is maybe, you know, tw- maybe a foot, foot by 18 inches or something. But I would stick them I st- about five or six years ago, stick them on the driveway at my house uh, in my old house. And now where we are now along the road, right in front of the house and then up the driveway a little bit. And I do it the day before Flag Day. And people would ask. Well, some people would ask. Uh, in my old house, there was more walking in front of the house here where, where I live now. There's not as much many people walking quite as it, it, when they walk in front of the house. I don't see them. Our, it's, a, it's our house is set back a little bit. But anyway, people will ask. And a lot of people, I assume, don't ask but see it. And then they relate to it. So this weekend's perfect. Saturday, work in the yard, put all the flags up. Sunday is flag day. Also, I staff a booth for the Republicans down at the farmer's market near where I live. So I'll have the flags out there. So it'll be a great day. It's going to be a great day uh, tomorrow. And then flag day will be super. So I hope you get into it. But here's what I want to remind you about. This is this is not what you need to know. We'll get to in a minute. But what I I wanted to tell you about, do you know why June 14th is flag day? And the answer is great and wonderfully historical. June 14th, 1777. How about that? At the Second Continental Congress, the the Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress passed a resolution June 14th, 1777. And it said this resolved that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the union be 13 stars, white in a blue field representing a new constellation. That was the resolution June 14th. It passed, of course. That's the beginning of the whole thing, by the way, the Continental Army also celebrates their uh, birthday from June 14th, 1775, which is also pretty cool. Uh, but I couldn't I didn't know that that history of the resolution of the Second Continental Congress. So celebrate Flag Day. And, you know, we'll get to what you need to know in a minute. But these are related. Watch this flow together. You're going to appreciate this, I hope. But as you do Flag Day, smile. It's worth celebrating. It's a great flag. First of all, it's a great flag. The, the, now, the modern flag it's just, it's a good looking flag. Some flags are really messy. If you look around the world, they're just silly. You know, they got funny things on them, bad colors, all. It's an awesome flag. And smile about it. it there's a joy behind the flag. We have a great nation. We are a great people. It is an extraordinary achievement. Everything about it is super. So it should be a celebration. And you can bring to it your own respect. By the way, do say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I hope you'll do that. That's another good excuse, another good, not excuse, but a good reason to do it. Flag day. Get out there and say the Pledge of Allegiance. But as you celebrate and as you feel it, understand it also knits us together. It, it, it puts us together. You're not an Italian American. You're not an African American. You're not a Belgian American. You're not a Native American. You're an American. You're a part of the people who buy into that flag. And that's pretty great. 
you know, we've said it before. It's trying to get a more perfect union. We Nobody said we had the perfect union, more perfect union. We're going for it, but we know we got to get better and better. But it's a pretty great thing, so celebrate it. Enjoy it. Don't be afraid to uh, to really recognize how great it is. Okay, and that mindset, that psychology, that energy, that positivity will make a big difference in your neighborhood, in your community, in our nation, which brings me what you need to know. I got up in the middle of the night last night. I guess it was early this morning, about two. It was was definitely two, two thirty or three in the morning. Three. It must have been about three because I went back to bed at four thirty and I slept into like seven thirty. It never happens. But from three or so until four thirty, I was reading And I also was listening. What woke me up, I think, was that I thought I heard the dog. And the dog, our our puppy, not a puppy, our dog named Lady, a boxer, uh, uh, sleeps in with my daughter, our oldest child. But she has a collar on that rings a little bit. It's like a bell. It's not a bell, but it sounds like a bell. Her tags. So I thought I heard her in the night. And when she gets up in the middle of the night, it's very rare. She has to go to the bathroom. Somebody's got to let her out. So I started to get up. Well, she didn't get up. But I sat there and I was reading. I'll get to the point here. But I was reading. And uh, I heard my eight-year-old daughter laugh in her sleep. Now, if you haven't heard an eight-year-old laugh in her sleep, like full-on, full-belly laugh in her sleep, it's like joy in a can. It's like that, it's like that movie Monsters, Inc., where they discover that, uh, you know, they thought that they could get energy from kid- children's screams, but it turns out they get energy from children's laughter. You know that, that movie? It's a great movie. Um, but... It was like that. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, this morning, I asked my eight-year-old what, what she was dreaming about. She didn't remember. But it was just wonderful. It was wonderful. It was such, it was such joy. It was such joy. I was so pleased. Yeah, I just want to tell you that. Well, around the same time as I'm, I'm listening to her laugh and then I'm reading, I read somewhere, I think it was Ed Lattimore, the great kind of thinker, writer, entrepreneur out of Pittsburgh. If you haven't followed him on Twitter, he's amazing, Lattimore, Ed Lattimore. I think he wrote something, a blog post or something, and he said, effectively, you can't be healthy and watch the news. You can't be healthy and pay attention to the news. And I thought, man, that's right. And so here's what I want to tell you. Here's what you need to know. For weeks and months, I've been telling you and talking about how Lots of things in our lives happen because we are able to be encouraging to ourselves and others and get our minds and hearts going in the right direction. And how in the last couple of weeks, we've thought, well, there's these protests and this sadness, there's a killing, there's a misunderstanding, there's this and that, accusations burning, all this stuff. But in general, we've been getting through that. There's been no more violence by cops. Do you notice that? There hasn't been more violence in the face of all this attitude and burning, there hasn't been more violence. There's been some more violence by bad guys and bad people. But we moved through that. It's kind of settling down. It's still the Seattle thing or whatever. The coronavirus, it seems like we have our figured out how to deal with it. Still sad, still some sick, not serious. But in the last 36 hours, have you noticed this? The media has pivoted. And they've started talking about, oh, my gosh, the virus is back. It's all terrible. It's as if as the racist riots, the riots and protests on race died out, the media said, we got to find something else to make people feel worked up over. Oh, let's go back to talking about people dying. Let's do a story about a 20-something-year-old girl in Chicago who needed a double lung transplant because she got the Wuhan virus. That's a story. If you read the story, you have to go to the bottom of the whole story where no one reads except nitwits like me, and you find that the girl in her 20s wasn't a healthy girl in her 20s. She was someone who had an immune-compromised disease that was being treated, which is why she got sick. Still a virus, still bad, but not exactly like walking down the street at the at the Navy Pier in Chicago. 
Chicago and bam, you're knocked out. But the media is now in a feeding frenzy again about how serious it is, how terrible it is. And step up to the microphone becomes this jerk, the chairman of the Fed, Powell. And he says, oh, yeah, I don't know if the economy can come back. And the markets go, oh, really? And here's my point. Here's what you need to know. The forces around us want to make us not feel better. They want to make us feel worse. They're doing it every single day. So what you need to know is you can't watch the news. You can't read the news. You can't trust the news. They are the enemy of the people. But they're not only the enemy of the people because they're lying. They're the enemy of the people because they're using their sophisticated way of operating to make us nuts. And they're being joined in it by people like the Fed chairman who just, he can't predict the future any better than you or I. But you know what I can tell you is if we think and talk and act based on the positive things that are happening and push forward, we got a better chance of succeeding. Nothing's guaranteed. I'm not promising you that. But right now, what you need to know is we're being swamped out by the negativity And you have to step up and plow through over the top and get positive and fight through the positive. Do do the be the ones who are the positive force. Use flag day. Use our connection to our communities. Use everything you can. Many people are back to churches, their church communities, get in prayer, whatever it is, get positive and make a difference because you cannot let the news and the doom and gloomers bring us down. It's having too big an effect. That's what you need to know. By the way, I think I said at the beginning, I'll have a better, a better debrief of the Flynn, General Flynn argument. It went on for hours and hours today. Over 25,000 people were watching at various times, which is a huge success in terms of attention. It's hard to read the tea leaves on Court of Appeals arguments. I, I, I clerked for the Court of Appeals for a year. They're just very complicated, and they, and they talk a lot, the judges. I'll give you a full download on Monday. It made me depressed because it seems like it's dragging on. I just want the man to be free. Let the man free. Let him free. Anyway, all right, that's enough. Let me take a break. We come back. We got a great show. It's Ed Martin on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I told you I love I love talking to authors. You know, I, I did, it's like a, my soft spot. And so, and I was really excited. That's my, you know, you got to follow this. My roommate from college who I've talked about some on the show, Doug, uh, Doug Rutherford. His older brother is a big highfalutin guy. He was like a he's he like hang, he hung out with Princess Diana, and he's in all this kind of stuff. He's a professor. He's been a professor in Missouri where I was for a while, and now now he's at uh, James Madison University. He was the head of one of their institutes, and now he's uh, well, he's now he's a tenured professor. But he has a new book, and his book is called America's Buried History: Landmines Landmines in the Civil War. Which I don't know, you know, uh, and so it's Dr. Ken Rutherford to join us in a second, but it's better to be lucky than good in terms of timing. Could a book on landmines in the Civil War right about now launch, at least in terms of getting a look? So welcome to the program, Ken. How are you? Good. Thank you, Ed. Glad to be on. Honored honored to be here. Well, so the first thing you want to say is, is there anything you want to tell America about your uh, younger brother? Not Eric. You have a bro- another younger brother, Eric, who's uh, more successful, but your, your youngest brother, Doug, is there anything you want to tell America about him? I would say he was a loyal foot soldier behind his older brothers. Uh, our brother Eric, a year younger, played football at Navy, went into the Marines, served our country in the Marine Corps, DEA. I played ball at Colorado, served my country in the Peace Corps, Mauritania, did some overseas work with DOD and other entities such as State Department. And Douglas always said he played at Holy Cross for a while. He was there with you, Ed. And, and he said he could serve his country by getting the highest income tax bracket. 
That sounds that sounds about right. He, he that's right. He said he, I think he said he made you guys do all the hard work and he's just uh he's just kind of in behind. But um well enough on that. So Ken, t- first of all tell the story. One reason why uh all kidding aside and you when you went on to your PhD, I think you were up at Georgetown, um it was after you'd been overseas, you'd done a lot of work in development and things. You mentioned the Peace Corps, but then landmines for the reason that the I'll let you say obviously hit close to home and it changed the trajectory not all of your life as a man, but in terms of your research. So walk us through that a little bit. So, so Ed, you know, a lot of the reasons when they read the book, they'll find out about landmines and the devastation they cause and all that. And in my experience, uh, my first introduction uh, to a landmine was when it took off, when the landmine took off both my legs. I was in Somalia. It was after the Peace Corps, which was in Mauritania, worked for the UN in Senegal, went to Eastern Africa to, to do economic development, part of the Operation Restore Hope, in Somalia, which most people remember as Black Hawk Down. Um, I was injured 10 weeks after that in an area controlled by Islamic fundamentalist group, a militia group, and I was trying to distribute American-provided aid uh, through different channels to help bring stability to the area. Anyway, uh, on one of those missions, uh, my vehicle hit a mine, and my Somali team and I got blown up. And to make a long story short is I end up losing both my legs uh, below the knee. And and but then you turn you know I mean and all kidding aside we were joking about you Doug and all but you turn what happens to you into what happens to you and you kind of so you became an expert on this subject and what I was kidding but Princess Diana had an interest in in the in the landmines and 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 you became acquainted and internationally so before we get to that to the question of this interesting book which is on America's buried history landmines in the Civil War said we're talking with uh, Dr Ken Rutherford about this a professor down at James Madison University in the world right now. Are landmines, I mean, Americans don't think, I don't think we think about landmines because they're not in our lives in America. Nobody's landmining. Even when we see violence, you don't see landmines. In the world, are landmines still in, in, in huge use? So they are, and they, there was a downturn after the Princess Diana, the Nobel Peace Prize, all that work in the late 1990s. More landmines were coming out of the ground than going in the ground. But right now, there's about 80 million landmines in the ground. Most of these weapons are victim-activated, which means it takes a person stepping on it or a vehicle going over it. You know, and it's, you know, uh, landmines kill people. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. But in this case, the weapon is doing a lot of the hard work and the tragedies. Most of these people die from blood loss not from the explosion hmm. itself. So, but, but back to your question, the, the trend is going upwards due to a lot of landmine use by non-state actors, the Taliban, um, ISIS. Hmm. They made a killing, literally, with landmines. They had artisanal landmines. They had massive workshops producing these weapons. And for really the first time, I would argue in the world's history, ISIS was a group that was using landmines permanently to devastate humanity. If they can't control land, they're going to devastate thousands, tens of thousands of mines. So the trend word, unfortunately, is going up in terms of huh. uh, casualties and landmine use. 
is uh, and 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 not and and is it is it because in a certain sense landmines are relatively inexpensive and don't require? I mean, if you do a if you do a dirty you know a sarin gas bomb, you got to get sarin, you got to mm-hmm. get different things. If you do a landmine, it's is it rel? I mean, I'm, I'm I'm totally guessing, but it's relatively easy um, and and therefore lower cost. Is it is that the path? You're right. You're spot on. They're cheap to make. Make them in your garage, lay them in the ground. It's a coward's weapon. Lay them in the ground, run away, and you don't know who's going to step on it. Um, huh. Yeah. So, so yeah. It's, a, it's an asymmetric oh, oh, oh. device. Yeah. All right, so back, we're talking with Ken Rutherford. His book, again, is America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. All right, so back now, I, I watched, I don't know if you saw it, I watched the uh, U.S. Grant documentary that was just on history. It was three three um, segments, three episodes, about an hour and 15 minutes each. Fascinating. I hadn't really seen a, a, a cover, you know, they were covering a lot of the battles. It was reenactment type thing, but and I was watching it, and, and you know, the, how it was hand-to-hand and how, you know, it was brutal, brutal stuff, the Civil War in terms of the, the fighting. Where did landmines fit in? I, you know, how, were they? And was it landmines? Was it uh, mining harbors? I mean, where did landmines fit in the Civil War? That is a great question, and that was the purpose. I wrote. I, this is my fifth book. I've written books on landmines. Everybody thought, nearly ninety nine percent of the world, including me, thought landmines were first used in a widespread basis in World War One in nineteen seventeen right. when tanks were used, and maybe in one yeah. case in eighteen sixty two outside of Yorktown. And moving to Virginia, I'm a Colorado boy, didn't know anything about the Civil War, moved to, moved to Virginia, part of a lot of the, about 40% of the fighting. I come to find out that landmines were used in about 14 to 15 different battlefields around the country. And nobody wrote huh. about all these battles where landmines were used. And initially, the Confederates invested in underwater explosives to protect the harbors. But as the Civil right. War went on, as a federal stranglehold, the Abaconda plan choked the harbors, the Confederates started using this technology on land. But it wasn't organized. Huh. It was in disparate groups, different inventors, different units. They're outgunned. They're outmanned. They're hungry. They're trying to grab whatever they could, uh, unexploded Union artillery shells, um, you know, hand grenades, and burning them to the ground, mostly, in two cases, most to, for two reasons, defensive or to uh, delay pursuing federal forces. Now, did did it did it was it was it uh, on one side only? I mean, what did the union realize all of a sudden? And by the way, in the grant, if you haven't seen the grant thing, I had not followed the um, this uh, famous. Um, uh, he did a he he mined underneath the uh, the um, uh, grant mined underneath the Confederate lines. I think maybe it was in yeah. in uh, Petersburg, and then Petersburg. and then blew it up. Beh- yeah, yeah. But behind. Yeah. But did the did the did the union also use uh, any kind of uh, landmines? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't the so, union have seen it and said, well? What's good for the goose is good for the gander in terms of yeah. cutting people off, or yeah. you know, cutting uh, cutting uh, uh, you know retreats or anything off, or, or was it really Confederate? So uh, in my research, it was all Confederate for a number of reasons. Number one, the Union had a lot of military assets to use. Number uh-huh. two, they're invading force, and landmines are yeah, primarily yeah. a defensive weapon. Moreover, the Union um, said that whoever. Whatever Confederate soldier or officers ordering or using landmines would be shot on the spot. So there's not a lot of written records, and also President Davis denied permission to replicate a, a landmine manufacturing booklet because he thought it would fall into Union hands and don't know what he, quote, 
devious secrets. So there wasn't a lot about there. A lot of it was purposely destroyed. In fact, in 1863, the Confederates made the first official landmine manufacturing facility as a Richmond. And it was, they didn't call like it was a Confederate torpedo bureau, but they called it the conscription bureau. Sort of a, it was part oh. of the Secret Service. Is uh, um, we're talking with uh, uh, Dr. Ken Rutherford. His book is America's Buried History: Landmines in the Civil War. You can get it wherever you buy books. It's uh, uh, on Amazon. I saw this Kindle as well as uh, hardback. Is um, so at the end of the day, the Confederates use it, but it didn't. Um, oh no, I don't want to ask you. Were there incidents? I know you said that the the statement was that the Union would shoot a Confederate officer or soldier on site if they were using uh, landmines or found to use it. Did that happen? Do we know? No, that that did not happen. What what did happen in nearly every single case is Confederate POWs were forced to either march at the head of federal columns uh, to oh. you know sort of defuse or deter landmine use by oh. their Southern Defender brothers, or uh-huh. uh, they're forced to clear the landmines after the battle. Fort Blakely huh. um, and other areas um, were huh. forced to clear. Wow. Well, it's and, a, and, and uh, it almost Im- suffered. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say that some of the Confederate soldiers were killed clearing their own mines. I see. I see. You know, it's un, it's uncommon. I'm sure you, everybody, all your colleagues in in, in academia, that you find a, a, some uh, aspect of the field that you're an expert in that was never written about. So it's pretty amazing yeah. that this uh, this topic exists. So America's buried history, landmines in the Civil War. Uh, Kenneth R. Rutherford, uh, Doctor Rutherford, is a professor down at James Madison University. Hey, thanks, Ken, for coming on. We appreciate it very much. Awesome, Matt. Glad to do so. Thank you. Good luck to you. Thank you. Uh, all right. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be right back. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, one of the guys that I really admire, who I've known for many years, and was Phyllis, the late Phyllis Schlafly uh, thought so, too, is Ken Blackwell. Ken um, was a mayor. Uh, he was a mayor of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, before he became the Secretary of State in Ohio. And I remember because I was at the election board in the city of St. Louis, and, and having him, uh, he was fearless. Um, he was fearless for lots of reasons. I think it's kind of in his uh, genes. But also, he, here was a statewide elected official, Republican, African-American who is saying, hey, the elections have to be secure. And it's not like everybody says it is. It's not. Uh, then in Missouri, we had a secretary of state named Robin Carnahan. She said there was never any fraud. Nobody did anything wrong. Anyway, so I admired him and I thought it was great. Years later, I became friendly with him. And he's one of the great conservative voices on a lot of issues. And so welcome to the program, uh, Ken Blackwell. How are you, sir? Hey, Ed. Good to be with you. Well, before I get to, uh, I want to ask you about Seattle because I can't resist. You know, you were a mayor, and mayor's hard work, right? Mayor, you know, mayor, governor, you know, you, you, but mayor even more. You got like when somebody gets, you know, killed in a city, whatever size, you're the mayor, right? You know, whether you're Rudy Giuliani or Ken Blackwell or you're in a, you know, small town. When you watch what's happening in some of these cities and the mayors are kind of stood back, you must. I know you've had different, you know, you've had liberal mayor friends. I'm sure that are liberal. You say, well, you do it differently, but you must kind of shake your head. I mean, what what are we to make of Seattle's mayor and, and what's happening with these mayors? Well, the Seattle mayor has surrendered to, to chaos. Look, the purpose of government is spelled out in the Constitution to secure unalienable rights, including 
those to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the manifestation of this purpose at the most basic level is that government is to protect the life, safety, and property of, of, of cities. Here is a mayor that has surrendered that responsibility uh, to street hoodlums. Uh, and she set up a situation where I think uh, the president has to evaluate whether uh, governor or mayor uh, is capable, uh, has the intention of putting down what, by all definitions, is an insurrection. Well, and so, and we're talking with Ken Blackwell, um, and, and, and let me ask you about that. So is, does the president, I, I agree with you, and I think most Americans, the danger for all of us, or a political danger, small p, is that, you know, you, you want to give, conservatives want to give the local communities a chance to do their own thing, but not at the risk of, of sort of mayhem. And so here we are watching, you know, uh, Seattle go, literally, they're, they're bragging about lawlessness. I mean, the Seattle mayor said something like, well, you know, it's, um, it's kind of like a spring break, or it's kind of like a party and you're like what i mean this is so but but how do you how do you bring in that do you bring in the troops do you, oh, well, you look, national I, guard what what yeah i i think i think the the folks at doj and, and the, the president's uh, legal team they understand the the constitution and the constitution and various congressional acts give uh, the president the legal power to call up the National Guard units or even active duty forces uh, to to stop disturbances that prevent the enforcement of the law and are so disruptive uh, that life and property uh, is at risk. While uh, the president has wisely, I think, uh, shown some constraint from any wide-scale deployment of, of troops, that the failure of, of, of state or local government to maintain order may, I underscore may, uh, demand federal intervention. And so I think what the president has, has said to those folks in Seattle, those folks in the state of Washington, and people across the country is that he stands ready to intervene to protect their lives and their, their property if there is clear evidence of a cowardly mayor or local government, state government, uh, and and that their lives and property are at risk. What these clowns have done, you know, is to set up borders, uh, and they are, in fact, holding the folks in that six, seven, eight-block area, you know, hostage. We, we actually have a hostage situation, and, and the, the, the mayor can call it a, a street party if she wants. Uh, right. you, you know, even the old Flip Wilson um, line, uh, you know, if you don't believe your lion eyes, you know, that's not going to yeah. work. That's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're talking with Ken Blackwell, Ken, uh, and uh, former mayor of Cincinnati and secretary of state uh, of Ohio and authority on a lot of subjects. But Ken, you probably ask this one now more than anything. You're a very prominent, I mean, by all accounts, even left, right, center would say accomplished African-American man. You know, you elected official, successful, and you're a, a leader of the uh, Trump 
camp is a campaign and then voices for Trump, black voices for Trump, among others. You must get it left and right from people saying, you know, oh, how can you do that? How can you do that? In this environment where we've seen everybody, the the, the easiest thing to do is just call everybody racist or white supremacist. How do you diffuse this? Can you let you grew up in this nation? You faced what everybody faced. That's an African-American. Walk us through this. Well, look, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. I grew up with uh, a, with a dad and a mom. My dad was a World War II veteran, uh, and he he came back. And what he said uh, was that you know we we had to understand uh, that the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence summed it up. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He said, look, that doesn't mean that, you know, uh, men and women of this country are the same size or the same race. They have the same intelligence. It means that they are created equal with the dignity invested in them by God. It, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, which means that our basic rights are not grants from government. They're gifts from God. And the government can only put uh, restraints on itself uh, so that you give the, the the optimal opportunity for individual liberty to take root uh, and, and, and for young people to have wings to, to fly. Uh, and so that's that's what you know. Understanding that, being standing on that firm understanding, you know, I was. I've always been. I've always said to folks uh, that I am. I am a, a child of God first. You know, I am. I am a proud American uh, who happens to be black, but who understands that in this country, the old Latin phrase "E pluribus unum" from the many ones really does turn on our ability to understand that you can't you can't divide us by race, by ethnicity. You know, you, you, you can't make these false decisions. And so I've always been a person who has believed when it comes to the American people in addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. Do you think that um, are things worse today than they were 10 years ago? Uh, it, the, the left tries to make us feel like everything's worse. Are things worse today? You know, Lincoln, Lincoln said it. You know, we're not a perfect union, but we're a perfectible union. And you have to have the imagination of, of Walt Disney to believe that our our, <laughs> our, our situation in America uh, has not improved. Uh, in 242 years, uh, we uh, we have watched America go from a country where there was the institution of slavery to whether you like him or not, agree with him or not, to electing a black man, you know, to president right. of the United States. We have we have mayors, right. we have police chiefs, <laughs> we have generals in the army, admirals in the navy. This country is a country of opportunity. It it is it is not, you know, we are at our best, not when we are growing, you know, the the, the welfare state, but when we are creating yeah. an opportunity society. Yeah. We are Good deal. Hey, I got to run. Unfortunately, I've got to run. Ken Blackwell, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we're up against a, a, a deadline in my ear. Ken Blackwell, a great man and a great leader and great success is worth uh, words listening to. I'll post his uh, his interview up on uh, social media, too. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be right back. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. 
This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily look at the significant issues of our time from an experienced conservative perspective. Sponsored by Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, this broadcast continues the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly and stands against forces that mock traditional values, slander America, and redefine the family. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. This Sunday, our nation will celebrate the symbol of our republic. Flag Day may not get as much press as Memorial Day or Independence Day, but it speaks to something very important to our nation. Symbolism just isn't respected as much as it once was. We've all seen young people at a baseball game who don't stand up and show respect when the national anthem is played. I'm not here to gripe about disrespectful teenagers. I want to take action. For every one of those disrespectful teens, there's a parent who didn't take their responsibility seriously. Parents, what are you doing to teach your sons or daughters about showing respect for great American traditions? The Pledge of Allegiance is a great example. Most parents count on the schools to teach their children how to recite the pledge, but many schools are cutting back on the frequency with which the pledge is used. Some schools are quietly cutting it out entirely. You can't rely on schools to teach your children the importance of patriotism. It's our job as parents to make sure our children grow up to be productive, well-informed citizens. If you haven't been taking the time to instill patriotic values in your children, Flag Day is a great day to start. Explain why we stand when we hear the national anthem. Talk about the symbolism of the 13 stripes and the 50 stars that adorn our nation's beloved emblem. If you're really ambitious, why not teach them a thing or two from the flag code about how to properly fold the flag? No matter what age your children are, there's something they can learn about showing respect for our nation's symbols. There's a culture of anti-American sentiment creeping into our national institutions. Teaching our children how they can honor heritage and tradition is one of the best tools we have to fight this rising tide. If we teach our children to respect the symbols of our nation, we can teach them to respect what the symbols stand for. Remember, parents, no one else is responsible for teaching these important values to our children. It's up to us. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Whether it's the vision of our founding fathers, the courage of our veterans, the moral compass of Christopher Columbus, or the fortitude of presidents like Lincoln and Reagan, the truth of history should not be undercut by liberal ideology. At Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, we honor history even as we look to the future. Join us at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. And uh, let me make sure uh, to remind you that June 14th, day after tomorrow, we're talking about Sunday, June 14th, every June 14th, is Flag Day. It's Flag Day. I hope you'll find a reason to get out and salute the flag, do the Pledge of Allegiance. The flag resolution, which was passed on June 14th, 1777, stated this, resolve that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. The design had been created, by the way, by a gentleman named Francis Hopkinson. He was a congressman from New Jersey. He also worked on the Great Seal of the U.S. So there you have it. It's Flag Day. I hope you'll celebrate. I, you know, I, I love the Pledge of Allegiance. We've talked about it a lot. I love our flag. It is a wonderful flag. And, um, 
I hope you'll get a chance to do something for Flag Day. Could be that in your own yard, in your own space, in your own place, maybe you don't have a flag. Maybe you do. I hope you do. But if you don't, you know what will be around? There'll be a flag at the... um, There'll be a flag at the post office. There'll be a flag at the firehouse. There'll be a flag somewhere. I hope you'll get a chance to admire the flag and have a good thought. Make it a symbol of hope. Make it a symbol of optimism. Make it a symbol of something good. Don't get uh, bogged down on negativity. There's too much negativity in the world, and I hope you'll uh, consider uh, doing that um, uh, The uh, uh, and, um, you know, be, uh, be upbeat about it. Um Let's see, a couple more things. I got a couple things I want to get off my mind. Don't forget, you, by the way, you, you can email me directly, edededmartinlive.com, edededmartinlive.com, uh, and people can get in touch by texting me, 314-256-1776. Here's a couple emails I got. Did you know that the Merriam-Webster uh, Dictionary people will be redefining racism because of everything they've seen? Now, I don't know what to make of this, except that it seems to me they're, they're, they're in the article, at least the coverage, um, it's a 22-year-old St. Louis woman, graduated college recently, and she complained, I think she's African-American, that there wasn't enough um, institutional racism in the definition of racism. Now, I got to tell you, I'm all for calling out any kind of ism. If somebody acts like a bigot, good, call them out on it. If they act like a racist, call them out on it. I don't know what institutional racism is. I don't know what they're talking about. When you ask people to tell you what that means, they tend to um, sort of um, talk about specific examples. You know, so-and-so was a racist. Well, that's a racist. But I don't know what institutional racism means. Nobody's defined that. So it seems uh, like a slippery slope here. And, and you, even Miriam Webster is running around trying to stay in good or stay on uh, the right side of people. Uh, here's another one. Oh, I did get this. There will be a story next week. My great friend, Helen Marie Taylor, who lives on Monument Avenue in Richmond and has lived there her whole life, uh, not her whole life, but for the last 45 years and has been a great protector of the uh, of the street. She makes sure that it's um, from a period they were going to pave it over, do different things. And they're, of course, threatening to tear down all those uh, monuments. Here's what I love. I mean, I don't love it. Here's what I find amazing. Liberals try to rewrite their own history to somehow cover it up. You know, Jimmy Fallon has been apologizing for blackface, which he did in the 2000s. He didn't do it in the 1970s or 80s. In the 2000s, he was doing uh, a blackface, but he's apologizing left and right. Here, one of the major writers in, uh, in, the, uh, in the D.C. area, in the swamp, is a guy named John Harris. John Harris is uh, at Politico. He's been around a long time. And he lived, in a, and he writes a lengthy column about how he lived in Richmond, worked as a journalist, and, and he never objected to the monuments. He never wrote anything about it. He never protested. Now he's woke. Now he's woke. And so he's writing this. And he says, here he writes, Why did I tolerate and even at times take friends to see the statues? It wasn't that the legacy of the Confederacy didn't offend me. So I guess, he, but he didn't say anything about it then. It was that the statues that depicted a history that seemed functionally dead. They also seemed like a joke. And the joke was on the very racist who had erected them in the first place. What revisionist nonsense. What nonsense from this guy. And we're supposed to read it with a straight face. He says he took his visitors when he was a journalist in Richmond to see the statues. And he did it because he believed then that it was they were a joke. And the people that erected them were joke. The joke's on you, John. 
What a, actually, what a jerk. What a jerk. Just say, if you want to, say, I have now seen the light. I joined the side that thinks that they're terrible and they shouldn't be up. But don't pretend that 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I think it was, back in the late 80s, early 90s, you were somehow, you were woke, but you just didn't say anything. You, you know, you were you were offended, but you didn't say anything because you thought they were functionally, their history was functionally dead. And it was a joke on the racists who put them up. What a what a joke these people are! What an what in, in unbelievable shallowness of so many people right now running around claiming to be thoughtful and thought leaderships and everything else. Just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Watch for the piece in the uh, in the Washington Post over the weekend. If you read the Washington Post, uh, Helen Marie Taylor, my friend, she's ninety six. Lives on Monument Avenue. They've been rattling the cages, rattling the doors of her house because she lives right near one of the big monuments and. Um, threatening to uh tear everything down and be terrible they broke into her garden and all kinds of things still silly stuff but uh not good for america all right uh, i will have a full report and a breakdown on monday of the general flynn uh, court of appeals argument it went on for hours and hours and hours uh, i'm not sure you can tell with court of appeals anything anyway it just frustrates me it's dragging on so all right we got to run have a great weekend everybody happy flag day celebrate flag day celebrate love the flag love america love our country and we will be back on monday night it's ed martin here on the pro america report thank you as always to noah our great technical director and joanna our fearless uh, producing uh, producer out in the heart of america in st louis and we appreciate them very much and thanks for listening ed martin pro america report talk to you monday (laughs) 